Welcome to Engaging the Experts, a series of interviews with pharmacy practitioners and educators on cutting-edge topics. In part two of this two-part Engaging the Experts interview, William Zelmer talks with Joe Dasta and Gretchen Brophy regarding hyponatremia management using medication use evaluation findings to improve care. This installment is produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Otsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated. It is available at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash findings or via iTunes as a podcast. This is William Zelmer for the ASHP program, Engaging the Experts, a series of interviews with pharmacy practitioners and educators on cutting-edge topics. I'm speaking with Joseph Dasta and Gretchen Brophy, who presented a session on this topic at the 2014 ASHP Major Clinical Meeting. Their presentation is now available as a continuing education program. Gretchen, uh, what can you say about differences in the management of ICU and non-ICU patients with hyponatremia? Well, the management strategies that we do use for hyponatremia can vary based on the route that we're giving the treatment. We sometimes need to be in the ICU for those patients that have more severe hyponatremia where they're going to need more closely monitored regimens than those possibly on the floor with more mild uh, hyponatremia symptoms. And also the ICU team and the treatment strategies, again, is is a team-based approach. So lots of eyes on board and lots of differences in watching and monitoring, especially with treatments such as hypertonic saline, where you're going to need a central line for administration. You're going to need to be in an ICU. You're going to need to be monitored for, you know, complications of that, as well as making sure we don't have any problems along with other administrations, such as overcorrection or prolonged symptoms because we aren't treating as aggressively. Depending on the severity of the hyponatremia, I think ICU versus non-ICU management does differ based on the patients and what's going on. Joe has some more comments from the database in regards to the ICU and non-ICU treatment of patients. Well, Gretchen points out some really important issues that differentiate these two patient populations. In our registry, when we look specifically at patients who have hyponatremia in the intensive care unit, an amazing statistic came out, found that 30% of these patients were transferred out of the ICU with a sodium less than 130. And that's significantly low sodium. And it suggests to me that perhaps we may not be paying enough attention to the fact that once the patient is hemodynamically stabilized in the ICU and the, you know, the infection is getting better, whatever the reason, we need to make sure that their sodiums get at least more closely corrected towards normal in many patients. And one consequence, and we did not study this, but it certainly is a possibility, is that uh, you may think the patient's stable, transfer to the floor, yet they're hyponatremic, that may set the patient up for uh, a readmission back to the ICU if their sodium continues to fall, and maybe it's not being followed on the floor as closely as it was in the ICU. I understand that fluid restriction is one of the most common methods of treating hyponatremia. Gretchen, could you comment on whether or not this situation is optimal and the related implications for clinical practice? Sure, Bill. 
In regards to fluid restriction, it's one of those treatment strategies I think that most people think of first when they think of hyponatremia, but it also has to do again, like Joe stated earlier, on what the volume status is of the patient. In order to use fluid restriction as one of your treatment strategies, you really need to make sure that that patient is not hypovolemic to start because that could then produce even more problems. Fluid restriction has to be, again, look at the patient and make sure that your patient is either euvolemic or hypervolemic before that would be instituted. And again, looking at the disease state of the patient where potentially fluid restriction could exacerbate their disease, especially in patients, for instance, in the neurologic setting where you need to make sure volumes are there in order to make sure blood supply is able to get to the brain, you know, and you have enough volume and, and enough pump basically to get it there. You know, fluid restriction is commonly used and it does need to be monitored. However, it's one of those treatment strategies where it's very hard to get the patients to be compliant, unfortunately, with this strategy. Because as you and I know, sitting around all day, we don't want to have a dry mouth and dry lips. We would like to be drinking something. And so therefore, it's very hard to keep the patient motivated to be adherent to this fluid restriction if they are able to drink. And then they are in the ICU with feeding tubes and things, then you have to adjust your IV fluids that are going in. You have to adjust the, the volume of free water that you're giving down the feeding tubes and things like that in order to make sure you're adhering to those fluid restrictions in order to treat that hyponatremia. So sometimes fluid restriction can be used effectively. It's not one of those that usually shows a, a very rapid change in the sodium levels. It's usually a slower change. And, you know, it's also based on the patient where you have to look at the risk benefits of what you're doing before you use that. And to add to Gretchen's comments, it's often thought of being, quote, unquote, an easy thing to do because it's safe. As Gretchen has pointed out, it's not easy to do. It may not be effective, but it may also have some medication error-related consequences. So, for example, if there's an order to concentrate the IV fluid with the drugs that are in various IV fluid and the hospital doesn't have the sophisticated uh, smart pumps, the infusion rate, if it's not changed, will result in an extra inappropriately high dose of vasoactive drugs and inotropes, etc., that can emanate from a, quote, safe, easy thing to do. Finally, to let you know, there is a app that is being developed. There's an app for everything these days that will um, attempt to give you predictors of response based on what we know in the literature and what the patient's values are that would suggest whether fluid restriction will or will not be effective. So stay tuned for that. So, uh, Joe, very interesting with respect to that app. It is not available yet. Is Do I understand that correctly? That's correct. It's not available yet. Uh, and I'm not sure which mode of uh, transmission they'll use to generate that, but it's in collaboration with, I'm not directly involved, it's collaboration with some world experts in hyponatremia and some industry support to develop it, so stay tuned. Okay. Your educational program covers the use of newer agents in treating hyponatremia, the Vaftins, as they're called, uh, specifically Conovaptin and Tolvaptin. Gretchen, how would you characterize the place of these medications in managing patients with hyponatremia? Well, for the use of aptigans in hyponatremia, you have to look back to the symptoms that are occurring with the patient. In those patients with either mild to moderate symptoms, you may use Avaptan after fluid restriction or in combination with fluid restriction. And then as the patient gets more severely hyponatremic and 
more pronounced symptoms, then you would see Vaptans in combination with usually hypertonic saline. So the Vaptans usually play a role along with other treatment strategies that we use, again, depending on the symptoms that are occurring. And I think one of the things to keep in mind as you're looking at the Vaptans is, again, there's a lot of studies out there that have shown, you know, that they are effective and they can increase your sodium levels. They really haven't shown any problems with rapid correction in patients that we know of thus far, but it's something to be kept in mind because once you give the dose, it's effective for at least a 24-hour period, and therefore it will be changing your sodium throughout that period of time. And so you need to make sure you're monitoring it well, probably every six to eight hours or so, just to make sure you're not overdoing it for that specific patient and for your target sodium that you're looking for. Also in the place of therapy for these, it's going to vary based on institution and what the treatment strategies are, but I think they are effective treatments and they can be looked at for individual patients as well as thinking about how combinations of the Vaptans, the Conivaptin and Tolvaptin with other therapies may be beneficial for the patients. I would add that if you're used to using therapies like fluid restriction, uh, drugs like demeclocycline, which is sometimes used, their onset is very slow and the magnitude of, uh, is quite small. And using a Vaptan could sort of surprise you when you see the sodium changing more rapidly than what you're used to seeing in other therapies. Gretchen really hit the nail on the head by saying it's monitoring, 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 because you want to avoid overcorrection. Well, as we bring our conversation to a close, I'd like to invite both of you to introduce any final comments you have about the role of pharmacists in managing patients with hyponatremia and the guidance that they can receive by participating in your web-based educational program on this topic. Yeah, I'll start. We try to cover the big picture in our program with references that the audience can use. And there's an expert panel that was published late 2013. The specific references is in our handout for the web-based component to give you really what we know best on how to manage these patients. And then the pharmacist role, in addition to the knowledge that we possess and the ability to sort of coordinate an approach, Gretchen mentioned falls, which is a big problem, both outpatient and inpatient. But in the inpatient setting, I know of several pharmacists that are members of the fall team in their institution. And we think about benzodiazepines and sedatives, opioids that are associated with patients falling, particularly the elderly. But pharmacists can bring up the question, well, what was their sodium at this time? And there's enough patients that have fallen and sodium wasn't known that would suggest they need to pay additional attention to these high-risk patients. And I would just add that by attending this web-based program, we can really help you focus on the different aspects of monitoring and treatment for hyponatremia and provide some input based on the database that was done and the registry that was done in order to give you some ideas of how different institutions are managing their patients, how we can potentially change our current strategies in our own hospitals and help us develop some protocols potentially for our our individual patients and units to help us monitor and treat the hyponatremic patients. The pharmacist is a big player in, in the team uh, in regards to hyponatremia therapy. We really can add an extra layer to the benefits that the patients will receive by participating in the treatment of hyponatremia. 
Joseph Dasta, Gretchen Brophy, uh, thank you very much for taking time to have this Engaging the Experts conversation with me. That concludes part two of this two-part Engaging the Experts interview. For more information on this topic, including an archived version of the mid-year clinical meeting presentation, visit www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash findings.